Section 1 of The Lost Valley. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Jared Wetzel Brown. The Lost Valley by Algernon Blackwood. Section 1. Mark and Stephen, twins, were remarkable even of their kind. They were not so much one soul split in twain as two souls fashioned in precisely the same mold. Their characters were almost identical. Taste, hopes, fears, desires, everything. They even liked the same food, wore the same kind of hats, ties, suits, and, strongest link of all, of course disliked the same things, too. At the age of thirty-five, neither had married, for they invariably liked the same woman and when a certain type of girl appeared upon their horizon they talked it over frankly agreed it was impossible to separate and together turned their backs upon her for a change of scene before she could endanger their peace for their love for one another was unbounded irresistible as a force of nature tender beyond words and their one keen terror was that they might one day be separated to look at, even for twins, they were uncommonly alike. Even their eyes were similar. That gray-green of the sea that sometimes changes to blue, and at night becomes charged with shadows. And both faces were of the same strong type, with aquiline noses, stern-lipped mouths, and jaws well marked. They possessed imagination, real imagination, of the winged kind, and, at the same time, the fine controlling will without which such a gift is apt to prove a source of weakness. Their emotions, too, were real and living, not the sort that merely tickle the surface of the heart, but the sort that plow. Both had private means, yet both had studied medicine because it interested them. Mark specializing in diseases of eye and ear, Stephen in mental and nervous cases and they carried on a select, even a distinguished, practice in the same house in Wimpole Street with their names on the brass plate thus, Dr. Mark Winters, Dr. Stephen Winters. In the summer of 1900, they went abroad together as usual for the months of July and August. It was their custom to explore successive ranges of mountains, collecting the folklore and natural history of the region into small volumes, neatly illustrated with Stephen's photographs. And this particular year they chose the Jeu, that portion of it, rather, that lies between the Lac de Joux, Balmes, and Fleurier. For, obviously, they could not exhaust a whole range in a single brief holiday. They explored it in sections, year by year, and they invariably chose for their headquarters quiet, unfashionable places where there was less danger of meeting attractive people who might break in upon the happiness of their profound brotherly devotion the incalculable, mystical devotion of twins. For abroad, you know, Mark would say, people have an insinuating way with them that is often hard to withstand. The chilly English reserve disappears. Acquaintanceship becomes intimacy before one has time to weigh it. Exactly, Stephen added. The conventions that protect one at home suddenly wear thin, don't they? And one becomes soft and open to attack unexpected attack. They looked up and laughed, reading each other's thoughts like trained telepathists. What each meant was the dread that one should, after all, 
be taken and the other left by a woman. Though at our age, you know, one is almost immune, Mark observed, while Stephen, smiling, agreed philosophically, or ought to be. Is, quoth Mark decisively, for by common consent Mark played the rôle of the elder brother. His character, if anything, was a shade more practical. He was slightly more critical of life, perhaps, Stephen being ever more apt to accept without analysis, even without reflection. But Stephen had that richer heritage of dreams, which comes from an imagination loved for its own sake. End of section one. Section two of The Lost Valley. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Jared Wetzel Brown. The Lost Valley by Algernon Blackwood. Section 2. In the peasant's chalet, where they had a sitting room and two bedrooms, they were very comfortable. It stood on the edge of the forest that run along the slopes of Chazeron on the side of Les Rases, furthest from Stequois. Marie Petivel provided them with the simple cooking they liked, and they spent their days walking, climbing, exploring, Mark collecting legend and folklore, Stephen making his natural history studies with the little maps and surveys he drew so cleverly. Even this was only a division of labor, for each was equally interested in the occupation of the other, and they shared results in the long evenings when expeditions brought them back in time, smoking in the rickety wooden balcony, comparing notes, shaping chapters, happy as two children. They brought the enthusiasm of boys to all they did, and they enjoyed the days apart almost as much as those they spent together. After separate expeditions, each invariably returned with surprises which awakened the other's interest, even amazement. Thus the life of the foreign element in the hotels, unpicturesque in the daytime, noisy and overdressed at night, passed them by. The glimpses they caught as they passed these caravansorais, when gaieties were the order of the evening, made them value their peaceful retreat among the skirts of the forest. They brought no evening dress with them, not even les smoking. The atmosphere of these huge hotels simply poisons the mountains, quoth Stephen. All that haunted feeling goes. Those people, agreed Mark, with scorn in his eyes, would be far happier at Touville or Dieppe, gambling, flirting, and the rest. Feeling thus secure from that jealousy which lies so terribly close to the surface of all giant devotions, where the entire life depends upon exclusive possession, the brothers regarded with indifference the signs of this gayer world around them. In that throng there was no one who could introduce an element of danger into their lives. No woman, at least, either of them could like, would be found there. For this thought must be emphasized, though not exaggerated. Certain incidents in the past, from which only their strength of will had made escape possible, proved the danger to be a real one. Usually, too, it was some un-English woman, to wit, the Budapest adventure, or the incident in London with the Greek girl who was first Mark's patient and then Stephen's. Neither of them made definite reference to the danger, 
though undoubtedly it was present in their minds more or less vividly whenever they came to a new place this singular dream that one day a woman would carry off one and leave the other lonely it was instinctive probably just as the dread of the wolf is instinctive in the deer the curious fact though natural enough was that each brother feared for the other and not for himself had anyone told mark that some day he would marry mark would have shrugged his shoulders with a smile and replied no but i'm awfully afraid stephen may and vice versa end of section two section three of the lost valley this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org read by jared wetzel brown the lost valley by algernon blackwood section three then out of a clear sky the bolt fell upon stephen catching him utterly unawares it sent him fairly reeling for stephen even more than his brother possessed that glorious yet fatal gift common to poets and children by which out of a few insignificant details the soul builds for itself a whole sweet heaven to dwell in it was at the end of their first month a month of unclouded happiness together since their exploration of the abruzzi two years before they had never enjoyed anything so much and not a soul had come to disturb their privacy plans were being mooted for moving their headquarters some miles further towards the val de traverse or the creux des vents only the day of departure indeed remained to be fixed when stephen coming home from an afternoon of photography alone saw with bewildering and arresting suddenness a face and with the effect of a blow full upon the heart it literally struck him how such a thing can come upon a strong man a man of balanced mind healthy in nerves and spirit and in a single moment change his serenity into a state of feverish and passionate desire for possession is a mystery that lies too deep for philosophy or science to explain it turned him dizzy with a sudden and tempestuous delight a veritable sickness of the soul wondrous sweet as it was deadly rare enough of course such instances may be but that they happen is undeniable he was making his way home in the dusk somewhat wearily the sun had already dipped below the horizon of france behind him across the open country that stretched away to the distant mountains of the rhone valley the moonlight climbed with wings of ghostly radiance that fanned their way into the clefts and pine woods of the jura all around him cool airs of night stirred and whispered lights twinkled through the openings among the trees and all was scented like a garden he must have strayed considerably from the right trail path there was none for instead of striking the mountain road that led straight to his chalet he suddenly emerged into a pool of electric light that shone round one of the smaller wooden hotels by the borders of the forest he recognized it at once because he and his brother always avoided it deliberately 
not so gay or crowded as the larger caravanserai, it was nevertheless full of people of the kind they did not care about. Stephen was a good half-mile out of his way. When the mind is empty and the body tired, it would seem that the system is sensitive to impressions with an acuteness impossible when these are vigorously employed. The face of this girl, framed against the glass of the hotel veranda, rushed out towards him with a sudden invading glory and took the most complete imaginable possession of this temporary unemployment of his spirit. Before he could think or act, accept or reject, it had lodged itself eternally at the very center of his being. He stopped, as before an unexpected flash of lightning caught his breath and stared. A little apart from the throng of dressy folk who sat there in the glitter of the electric light, this face of melancholy, dark splendor rose close before his eyes, all soft and wondrous as though the beauty of the night of forest, stars, and moonrise had dropped down and focused itself within the compass of a single human countenance. Framed within a corner pane of the big windows, peering sideways into the darkness, the vision of this girl, not twenty feet from where he stood, produced upon him a shock of the most convincing delight he had ever known. It was almost as though he saw someone who had dropped down among all these hotel people from another world. And from another world, in a sense, she undoubtedly was. For her face held in it nothing that belonged to the European countries he knew. She was of the East. The magic of other suns swept into his soul with the vision. The pageantry of other skies flashed brilliantly and was gone. Torches flamed in recesses of his being, hitherto dark. The incongruous surroundings unquestionably deepened the contrast to her advantage, but what made this first sight of her so extraordinarily arresting was the curious chance that where she sat, the glare of the electric light did not touch her. She was in shadow from the shoulders downwards. Only, as she leaned backwards against the window, the face and neck turned slightly. There fell upon her exquisite eastern features the soft glory of the rising moon. And comely she was in Stephen's eyes, as nothing in his life had hitherto seemed comely. Apart from the vulgar throng, as an exotic is apart from the weeds that choke its growth, this face seemed to swim towards him along the pathway of the slanting moonbeams, and with it came literally herself. Some released projection of his consciousness flew forth to meet her. The sense of nearness took his breath away with the faintness of too great happiness. She was in his arms, and his lips were buried in her scented hair. The sensation was vivid with pain and joy, as an ecstasy, and of the nature of true ecstasy, perhaps it was, for he stood, it seemed, outside himself. He remained there, riveted in the patch of moonlight at the forest edge, for perhaps a whole minute, perhaps two, before he realized what had happened. Then came a second shock that was even more conquering than the first, for the girl, he saw, was not only gazing into his very face, she was also rising, 
as with an incipient gesture of recognition. As though she knew him, the little head bent itself forward gently, gracefully, and the dear eyes positively smiled. The impetuous yearning that leaped full-fledged into his blood taught him in that instant the spiritual secret that pain and pleasure are fundamentally the same force. His attempt at self-control, made instinctively, was utterly overwhelmed. Something flashed to him from her eyes that melted the very roots of resolve. He staggered backwards, catching at the nearest tree for support, and in so doing left the patch of moonlight and stood concealed from view within the deep shadows behind. Incredible as it must seem in these days of starved romance, this man of strength and firm character, who had hitherto known of such attacks only vicariously from the description of others, now reeled back against the trunk of a pine tree, knowing all the sweet faintness of an overpowering love at first sight. For that, by God, I'd let myself waste utterly to death. To bring her an instant's happiness, I'd suffer torture for a century. For the words, with their clumsy, concentrated passion, were out before he realized what he was saying, what he was doing, but, once out, he knew how pitifully inadequate they were to express a tith of what was in him, like a rising storm. All words dropped away from him. The breath that came and went so quickly clothed no further speech. With his retreat into the shadows, the girl had sat down again, but she still gazed steadily at the place where he had stood. Stephen, who had lost the power of further movement, also stood and stared. The picture, meanwhile, was being traced with hot iron upon plastic deeps in his soul, of which he had never before divined the existence. And again, with the magic of this master yearning, it seemed that he drew her, out from that horde of hotel guests till she stood close before his eyes, warm, perfumed, caressing. The delicate, sharp splendor of her face, already dear beyond all else in life, flamed there with an actual touch of his lips. He turned giddy with the joy, wonder, and mystery of it all. The frontiers of his being melted, then extended to include her. From the words a lover fights among to describe the face he worships, one divines only a little of the picture. These dimly colored symbols conceal more beauty than they reveal. And of this dark young oval face, first seen sideways in the moonlight, with drooping lids over the almond-shaped eyes, soft cloudy hair, all enwrapped with the haunting and penetrating mystery of love, Stephen never attempted to analyze the ineffable secret. He just accepted it with a plunge of utter self-abandonment. He only realized vaguely by way of detail that the little nose, without being Jewish, curved singularly down towards a chin daintily chiseled in firmness, that the mouth held in its lips the invitation of all womankind as expressed in another race, a race alien to his own an eastern race, and that something untamed, almost savage, in the face was corrected by the exquisite tenderness of the large, dreamy, brown eyes. 
the mighty revolution of love spread its soft tide into every corner of his being. Moreover, that gesture of welcome, so utterly unexpected yet so spontaneous, so natural, it seemed to him now, the smile of recognition that had so deliciously perplexed him, he accepted in the same way. The girl had felt what he had felt, and had betrayed herself even as he had done by a sudden, uncontrollable movement of revelation and delight, and to explain it otherwise by any vulgar standard of worldly wisdom would be to rob it of all its dear modesty, truth, and wonder. She yearned to know him, even as he yearned to know her. And all this in the little space as men count time, of two minutes, even less, how he was able at the moment to restrain all precipitate and impulsive action, Stephen has never properly understood. There was a fight, and it was short, painful, and confused, but it ended on a note of triumphant joy, the rapture of happiness to come. With a great effort, he remembers that he found the use of his feet and continued his journey homewards, passing out once more into the moonlight. The girl in the veranda followed his disappearing figure with her turning head. She craned her neck to watch till he disappeared beyond the angle of vision. She even waved her little dark hand. I shall be late, ran the thought sharply through Stephen's mind. It was cold, vivid with keen pain. Mark will wonder what in the world has become of me. For, with swift and terrible reaction, the meaning of it all, the possible consequences of the face swept over his heart and drowned it in a flood of icy water. In estimating his brotherly love, even the love of the twin, he had never conceived such a thing as this, had never reckoned with the possibility of a force that could make all else in the world seem so trivial. Mark, had he been there, with his more critical attitude to life, might have analyzed something of it away. But Mark was not there, and Stephen had seen. Those mighty strings of life upon which, as upon an instrument, the heart of a man lies stretched, had been set powerfully a-quiver. The new vibrations poured and beat through him. Something within him swiftly disintegrated. In its place something else grew marvelously, the face had established dominion over the secret places of his soul. Thenceforward, the process was automatic and inevitable. End of Section 3、Section、4 of The Lost Valley This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Jared Wetzel Brown. The Lost Valley by Algernon Blackwood. Section 4. Then, specter-like and cold, the image of his brother rose before his inner vision. The profound brotherly love of the twin confronted him in the path. He stumbled among the roots and stones, searching for the means of self-control, but finding them with difficulty. Windows had opened everywhere in his soul. He looked out through them upon a new world, 
immense and gloriously colored behind him in the shadows as his vision searched and his heart sang reared the single thought that hitherto had dominated his life his love for mark it had already grown indisputably dim for both passions were genuine and commanding the one built up through thirty-five years of devotion cemented by ten thousand associations and sacrifices the other dropping out of heaven upon him with a suddenness simply appalling and from the very first instant he understood that both could not live one must die to feed the other on the staircase was the perfume of a strange tobacco and to his surprise an intense relief when he entered the chalet he found that his brother for the first time was not alone a small dark man stood talking earnestly with him by the open window the window where mark had obviously been watching with anxiety for his arrival before introducing him to the stranger mark at once gave expression to his relief i was beginning to be afraid something had happened to you he said quietly enough but in a way that the other understood and after a moment's pause in which he searched stephen's face keenly he added but we didn't wait supper as you see and old petivel has kept yours all hot and ready for you in the kitchen i er lost my way stephen said quickly glancing from mark to the stranger wondering vaguely who he was i got confused somehow in the dusk mark remembering his manners now that his anxiety was set at rest hastened to introduce him a professor in a russian university interested in folklore and legend who had read their book on the abruzzi and discovered quite by chance that they were neighbors here in the forest he was staying in a little hotel at les Raz and had ventured to come up and introduce himself stephen was far too occupied trying to conceal his new battling emotions to notice that mark and the stranger seemed on quite familiar terms he was so fearful lest the perturbations of his own heart should betray him that he had no power to detect anything subtle or unusual in anybody else professor samarians comes originally from tiflis mark was explaining and has been telling me the most fascinating things about the legends and folklore of the caucasus we really must go there another year stephen mr samarians most kindly has promised me letters to helpful people he tells me too of a charming and exquisite legend of a lost valley that exists hereabouts where the spirits of all who die by their own hands or otherwise suffer violent deaths find perpetual peace the peace denied them by all the religions that is mark went on talking for some minutes while stephen took off his knapsack and exchanged a few words with their visitor who spoke excellent english he was not quite sure what he said but hoped he talked quietly and sensibly enough in spite of the passions that waged war so terrifically in his breast he noticed however that the man's face held an unusual charm though he could not detect wherein its secret specifically lay presently with excuses of hunger he went into the kitchen for his supper hugely relieved to find the opportunity to collect his thoughts a little and when he returned twenty minutes later he found that his brother was alone professor samarians had taken his leave in the room still lingered the perfume of his peculiarly flavoured cigarettes mark after listening with half an ear to his brother's description of the day began pouring out his new interest he was full of the caucasus and its folklore and of the fortunate chance that had brought the stranger their way 
the legend of the lost valley in the jaa too particularly interested him and he spoke of his astonishment that he had hitherto come across no trace anywhere of the story and fancy he exclaimed after a recital that lasted half an hour the man came up from one of those little hotels on the edge of the forest that noisy one we have always been so careful to avoid you never know where your luck hides do you he added with a laugh you never do indeed replied stephen quietly now wholly master of himself or at least of his voice and eyes and to his secret satisfaction and delight it was mark who provided the excuses for staying on in the chalet instead of moving further down the valley as they had intended besides it would have been unnatural and absurd to leave without investigating so picturesque a legend as the lost valley we're uncommonly happy here mark added quietly why not stay on a bit why not indeed answered stephen trusting that the fearful inner storm instantly roused again by the prospect did not betray itself you are not very keen perhaps old fellow suggested mark gently on the contrary i am very was the reply good then we'll stay the words were spoken after a pause of some seconds stephen who was down at the end of the room sorting his specimens by the lamp looked up sharply mark's face where he sat on the window ledge in the dusk was hardly visible it must have been something in his voice that had shot into stephen's heart with a flash of sudden warning a sensation of cold passed swiftly over him and was gone had he already betrayed himself was the subtle almost telepathic sympathy between the twins developed to such a point that emotions could be thus transferred with the minimum of word or gesture within the very shades of their silence even and another thought was there something different in mark too something in him also that had changed or was it merely his own raging heaving passion though so sternly repressed that distorted his judgment and made him imaginative what stood so darkly in the room between them a sudden and fearful pain seared him inwardly as he realized practically and with cruelly acute comprehension that one of these two loves in his heart must inevitably die to feed the other and that it might have to be mark the complete meaning of it came home to him and at the thought all his deep love of thirty years rose in a tide within him flooding through the gates of life seeking to overwhelm and merge in itself all obstacles that threatened to turn it aside unshed tears burned behind his eyes he ached with a degree of actual physical pain after a moment of savage self-control he turned and crossed the room but before he had covered half the distance that separated him from the window where his brother sat smoking the rush of burning words were they to have been of confession of self-reproach or of renewed devotion swept away from him so that he wholly forgot them in their place came the ordinary dead phrases of convention he hardly heard them himself though his lips uttered them come along mark old chap he said conscious that his voice trembled and that another face slipped imperiously in front of the one his eyes looked upon it's time to go to bed i'm dead tired like yourself you are right mark replied looking at him steadily as he turned towards the lamplight besides the night air's getting chilly 
and we've been sitting in a drought, you know, all along. For the first time in their lives, the eyes of the two brothers could not quite find each other. Neither gaze hit precisely the middle of the other. It was as though a veil hung down between them, and a deliberate act of focus was necessary. They looked one another straight in the face as usual, but with an effort, with momentary difficulty. The room, too, as Mark had said, was cold, and the lamp, exhausted of its oil, was beginning to smell. Both light and heat were going. It was certainly time for bed. The brothers went out together, arm in arm, and the long shadows of the pines thrown by the rising moon through the window fell across the floor like arms that waved. And from the black branches outside, the wind caught up a shower of sighs and dropped them about the roofs and walls as they made their way to their bedrooms on opposite sides of the little corridor. End of section four. Section five of The Lost Valley. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Jared Wetzel Brown. The Lost Valley by Algernon Blackwood. Section five. Four hours later, when the moon was high overhead and the room held but a single big shadow, the door opened softly and in came Stephen. He was dressed. He crossed the floor stealthily, unfastened the windows, and let himself out upon the balcony. A minute afterwards he had disappeared into the forest beyond the strip of vegetable garden at the back of the chalet. It was two o'clock in the morning, and no sleep had touched his eyes, for his heart burned, ached, and fought within him and he felt the need of open spaces and the great forces of the night and mountains. No such battle had he ever known before. He remembered his brother saying years ago, with a half-serious, half-playful, For if ever one of us comes a cropper in love, old fellow, it will be time for the other to go. And by go, they both understood the ultimate meaning of the word. Through the glades of forest, sweet-scented by night, he made his way till he reached the spot where that face of soft splendor had first blessed his soul with its mysterious glory. There he sat down and, with his back against the very tree that had supported him a few hours ago, he drove his thoughts forward into battle with the whole strength of his will and character behind him. Very quietly and with all the care precision and steadiness of mind that he would have brought to bear upon a difficult case at Wimpole Street, he faced the situation and wrestled with it. The emotions during four hours tossing upon a sleepless bed had worn themselves out a little. He was, in one sense of the word, calm, master of himself. The facts, with the huge issue that lay in their hands, he saw naked, and, as he thus saw them, he discerned how very, very far he had already traveled down the sweet path that led him toward the girl and away from his brother. Details about her, of course, he knew none, whether she was free even, for he only knew that he loved and that his entire life was already breaking with the yearning to sacrifice itself for that love. That was the naked fact. The problem 
bludgeoned him. Could he do anything to hold back the flood still rising to arrest its terrific flow? Could he divert its torrent and take it, girl and all, to offer upon the altar of that other love, the devotion of the twin for its twin, the mysterious affinity that hitherto had ruled and directed all the currents of his soul? There was no question of undoing what had already been done. Even if he never saw that face again, or heard the accents of those beloved lips, if he never was to know the magic of touch, the perfume of close thought, or the strange blessedness of telling her his burning message and hearing the murmur of her own, the fact of love was already accomplished between them. That was ineradicable. He had seen the sensitive plate had received its undying picture. For this was no foolish passion arising from the mere propinquity that causes so many of the world's misfit marriages. It was a profound and mystical union already accomplished, psychical in the utter sense, inevitable as the marriage of wind and fire. He almost heard his soul laugh as he thought of the revolution effected in an instant of time by the message of a single glance. What had science, or his own special department of science, to say to this tempest of force that invaded him, and swept with its beautiful terrors of wind and lightning the furthest recesses of his being? This whirlwind that so shook him, that so deliciously wounded him, that already made the thought of sacrificing his brother seem sweet, what was there to say to it, or do with it, or think of it? Nothing, nothing, nothing. He could only lie in its arms and rest with that peace deeper than all else in life, which the mystic knows when he is conscious that the everlasting arms are about him, and that his union with the greatest force of the world is accomplished. Yet Stephen struggled like a lion. His will rose up and opposed itself to the whole invasion. And in the end, his will of steel trained as all men of character train their wills against the difficulties of life, did actually produce a certain, definite result. This result was almost a tour de force. Perhaps, yet, it seemed valid. By its aid, Stephen forced himself into a position he felt intuitively was an impossible one, but in which, nevertheless, he determined by a deliberate act of almost incredible volition that he would remain fixed. He decided to conquer his obsession and to remain true to Mark. The distant ridges of the dim blue Jura were tipped with the splendors of the coming dawn when at length he rose, chilly and exhausted, to retrace his steps to the chalet. He realized fully the meaning of the resolve he had come to, and the knowledge of it froze something within him into a stiffness that was like the stiffness of death. The pain in his heart battling against the resolution was atrocious. He had estimated, or thought so, at least, the meaning of his sacrifice. As a matter of fact, his decision was entirely artificial, of course, and his resolve dictated by a moral code rather than by the living forces that direct life and can alone make its changes permanent. Stephen had in him the stuff of the hero. And, having said that, one has said all that language can say. 
On the way home in the cool white dawn, as he crossed the open spaces of meadow where the mist rose and the dew lay like rain, he suddenly thought of her lying dead. Dead, that is. As he had thus decided she was to be dead for him. And instantly, as by a word of command, the entire light went out of the landscape and out of the world. His soul turned wintry and all the sweetness of his life went bleak. For it was the ancient soul in him that loved, and to deny it was to deny life itself. He had pronounced upon himself a sentence of death by starvation, a lingering and prolonged death accompanied by tortures of the most exquisite description. And along this path he really believed at the moment his little human will could hold him firm. He made his way through the dew-drenched grass with the elation caused by so vast a sacrifice singing curiously in his blood. The splendor of the mountain sunrise and all the vital freshness of the dawn was in his heart. He was upon the chalet almost before he knew it, and there on the balcony, waiting to receive him, his gray dressing gown wrapped about his ears in the sharp air, stood Mark! And somehow or other, at the sight, all this false elation passed and dropped. Stephen looked up at him, standing suddenly still there in his tracks, as he might have looked up at his executioner. The picture had restored him most abruptly, with sharpest pain, to reality again. Like me, you couldn't sleep, eh? Mark called softly, so as not to waken the peasants who slept on the ground floor. Have you been lying awake too? Stephen replied. All night. I haven't closed an eye. Then, Mark added, as his brother came up the wooden steps towards him, I knew. You were awake. I felt it. I knew, too. You had gone out. A silence passed between them. Both had spoken quietly, naturally, neither expressing surprise. Yes, Stephen said slowly at length. We always reflect each other's pain, each other's moods. He stopped abruptly, leaving the sentence unfinished. Their eyes met as of old. Stephen knew an instant of quite freezing terror in which he felt that his brother had divined the truth. Then Mark took his arm and led the way indoors on tiptoe. Look here, Stevie, old fellow, he said with extraordinary tenderness. There's no good saying anything but I know perfectly well that you're unhappy about something, and so, of course, I am unhappy too. He paused, as though searching for words. Under ordinary circumstances, Stephen would have caught his precise thought, but now the tumult of suppressed emotion in him clouded his divining power. He felt his arm clutched in a sudden vice. They drew closer to one another. Neither spoke. Then Mark, low and hurriedly said he almost mumbled it it's all my fault really all my fault dear old boy stephen turned in amazement and stared what in the world did his brother mean what was he talking about before he could find speech however mark continued speaking distinctly now and with evidences of strong emotion in his voice i'll tell you what we'll do he exclaimed with sudden decision. We'll go away. We'll leave. We've stayed here a bit too long, perhaps, eh? What do you say to that? Stephen did not notice how sharply Mark searched his face. 
At the thought of separation, all his mighty resolution dropped like a house of cards. His entire life seemed to melt away and run in a stream of impetuous yearning towards the face. But he answered quietly, sustaining his purpose artificially by a force of will that seemed to break and twist his life at the source with extraordinary pain. He could not have endured the strain for more than a few seconds. His voice sounded strange and distant. All right, at the end of the week, he said. The faintness in him was dreadful, filling him with cold. And that'll give us just three days to make our plans, won't it? Mark nodded his head. Both faces were lined and drawn like the faces of old men, only there was no one there to remark upon it, nor upon the fixed sternness that had dropped so suddenly upon their eyes and lips. Arm in arm, they entered the chalet and went to their bedrooms without another word. The sun, as they went, rose close over the treetops and dropped its first rays upon the spot where they had just stood. End of section five. Section six of The Lost Valley. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Jared Wetzel Brown. The Lost Valley by Algernon Blackwood. Section six. They came down in dressing gowns to a very late breakfast. They were quiet, grave, and slightly preoccupied. Neither made the least reference to their meeting at sunrise. New lines had graved themselves upon their faces, identical hues, it seemed, drawing the mouth down at the corners with a touch of grimness, where hitherto had been merely firmness. And the eyes of both saw new things, new distances, new terrors, Something, feared till now only as a possibility, had come close and stood at their elbows for the first time as an actuality. Sleep, in which changes offered to the soul during the day are confirmed and ratified, had established this new element in their personal equation. They had changed, if not towards one another, then towards something else. But Stephen saw the matter only from his own point of view. For the first time in his memory, he seemed to have lost the intuitive sympathy which enabled him to see things from his brother's point of view as well. The change, he felt positive, was in himself, not in Mark. He knows, he feels, something in me has altered dreadfully, but he doesn't yet understand what, his thoughts ran. Pray to God he need never know at least until I have utterly conquered it. For he still held with all the native tenacity of his strong will to the course he had so heroically chosen. The degree of self-deception his imagination brought into the contest seemed incredible when his mind looked back upon it all from the calmness of the end. But at the time he genuinely hoped, wished, intended to conquer, even believed that he would conquer, Mark, he noticed, reacted in little ways that curiously betrayed his mental perturbation, and, at any other time, might have roused his brother's suspicions. He put sugar in Stephen's coffee, for instance. He forgot to bring him a cigarette when he went to the cupboard to get one for himself. He said and did numerous little things that were contrary to his habits, 
or to the habits of his twin. In all of which, however, Stephen saw only the brotherly reaction to the change he was conscious of in himself. Nothing happened to convince him that anything in Mark had suffered revolution. With the mystical devotion peculiar to the twin, he was too keenly aware of his own falling away to imagine the falling away of the other. He, Stephen, was the guilty one, and he suffered atrociously. Moreover, the pain of his renunciation was heightened by the sense that his ideal love for Mark had undergone a change, that he was making this fatal sacrifice, therefore, for something that perhaps no longer existed. This, however, he did not realize yet as an accomplished fact. Even if it were true, the resolution he had come to acted by way of hypnotic suggestion to conceal it. At the same time, it added enormously to the confusion and perplexity of his mind. That day for the brothers was practically a dissonon. They spent what was left of the morning over many aimless and unnecessary little duties, somewhat after the way of women. Although neither referred to the decision to leave at the end of the week, both acted upon it in desultory fashion almost as though they wished to make a point of proving to one another that it was not forgotten, not wholly forgotten at any rate. They made a brave pretense of collecting various things with a view to ultimate packing. No word was spoken, however, that bore more closely upon it than occasional phrases such as, when the time comes to go, when we leave, better put that out or it will be forgotten, you know. The sentences dropped from their mouths alternately at long intervals, the only one deceived being the utterer. It was not unlike the pretense of schoolboys, only more elaborate and infinitely more clumsy and ill-done. Stephen, at any other time, would probably have laughed aloud. Yet the curious thing was that he noticed the pretense only in his own case. Mark, he thought, was genuine, though perhaps not too eager. He's agreed to leave, the dear old chap, because he thinks I want it, and not for himself, he said. And the idea of the small brotherly sacrifice pleased yet pained him horribly at the same time, for it tended to rehabilitate the old love which stood in the way of the new one. He began, however, to take less trouble to sort and find his things for packing. He wrote letters, put out photographs to print in the sun, even studied his maps for expeditions, making occasional remarks thereon aloud, which Mark did not negative. Presently, he forgot altogether about packing. Mark said nothing. Mark followed his example, however. During the afternoon, both lay down and slept, meeting again for tea at five. It was rare that they found themselves in for tea. Mark, today, made a special little ritual of it. He made it over their own spirit lamb, almost tenderly, looking after his brother's wants like a woman. And the little meal was hardly over when a boy in hotel livery arrived with a note, an invitation from Professor Samarians. He has looked up a lot of his papers, observed Mark carelessly as he tossed the note down, and suggests my coming in for dinner, so that he can show me everything afterwards without hurry. I should accept, said Stephen. It might be valuable for us if we go to the Caucasus later. Mark hesitated a minute or two, telling the boy to wait in the kitchen. 
I think I'll go in after dinner instead, he decided presently. There was a trace of eagerness in his manner, which Stephen, however, did not notice. Take your notebook and pump the old boy dry, Stephen added with a slight laugh. I shall go to bed early myself, probably. And Mark, stuffing the note into his pocket, laughed back and consented to the other's great relief. It was very late when Mark returned from the visit, but his brother did not hear him come, having taken a draft to ensure sleeping. And next morning Mark was so full of the interesting information he had collected, and would continue to collect, that the question of leaving at the end of the week dropped of its own accord without further ado. Neither of the brothers made the least pretense of packing. Both wished and intended to stay on where they were. I shall look up Samarians again this afternoon, Mark said casually during the morning, and, if you've no objection, I might bring him back to supper. He's the most obliging fellow I've ever met, and crammed with information. Stephen, signifying his agreement, took his camera, his specimen tin, and his geological hammer, and went out with bread and chocolate in his knapsack for the rest of the afternoon by himself. End of section 6 Section 7 of The Lost Valley This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Jared Wetzel Brown. The Lost Valley by Algernon Blackwood. Section 7. Moreover, he not only set out bravely, but for many hours held true, keeping so rigid a control over his feelings that it seemed literally to cost him blood. All the time, however, a passionate yearning most craftily attacked him, and the very memory he strove to smother rose with a persistence that ridiculed repression. Like snowflakes, whose individual weight is inappreciable, but their cumulative burden irresistible, the thoughts of her gathered behind his spirit, ready at a given moment to overwhelm. And it was on the way home again in the evening that the temptation came upon him like a tidal wave that made the mere idea of resistance seem utterly absurd. He remembered wondering with a kind of wild delight whether it could be possible for any human will to withstand such a tempest of pressure as that which took him by the shoulders and literally pushed him out of his course towards the little hotel on the edge of the forest. It was utterly inconsistent, of course, and he made no pretense of argument or excuse. He hardly knew, indeed, what he expected to see or do. His mind, at least, framed no definite idea. But far within him, that deep heart which refused to be stifled, cried out for a drop of the living water that was now its very life. And, chiefly, he wanted to see, if only he could see her once again, even from a distance, the merest glimpse. With one more sight of her that should charge his memory to the brim for life, he might face the future with more courage, perhaps. Ah, that perhaps for she was drawing him with those million invisible cords of love that persuade a man he is acting of his own volition when actually he is but obeying the inevitable forces that bind the planets and the suns and this time there was no hurry there was a good hour before mark would expect him home for supper he could sit among the shadows of the wood and wait in his pocket were the field glasses, and he realized with a sudden secret shame that it was not by accident that they were there. 
He stumbled even before he got within a quarter of a mile of the place, for the idea that perhaps he would see her again made him ridiculously happy. And, like a schoolboy, he positively trembled, tripping over roots and misjudging the distance of his steps. It was all part of a great whirling dream in which his soul sang and shouted the first delirious nonsense that came into his head. The possibility of his eyes again meeting hers produced a sensation of triumph and exultation that only one word describes. Intoxication. As he approached the opening in the trees whence the hotel was so easily visible, he went more slowly, moving even on tiptoe. It was instinctive for he was nearing a place made holy by his love. Picking his way almost stealthily, he found the very tree, then leaned against it while his eyes searched eagerly for a sign of her in the glass veranda. The swiftness and accuracy of sight at such a time may be cause for wonder, but it is beyond question that in less than a single second he knew that the throng of moving figures did not contain the one he sought. She was not among them and he was just preparing to make himself comfortable for an extended watch when a sound or movement, perhaps both, somewhere among the trees on his right attracted his attention. There was a faint rustling. A twig snapped. Stephen turned sharply. Under a big spruce, not half a dozen yards away, something moved, then rose up. At first, owing to the gloom, he took it for an animal of some kind, but the same second he saw that it was a human figure. It was two human figures standing close together. Then one moved apart from the other. He saw the outline of a man against a space of sky between the trees, and a voice spoke, a voice charged with great tenderness, yet driven by high passion. But it's nothing, nothing. I shall not be gone two minutes, and to save you an instant's discomfort, you know that I would run the whole circle of the earth. Wait here for me. That was all. But the voice and figure caused Stephen's heart to stop beating, as though it had been suddenly plunged into ice, for they were the voice and the figure of his brother Mark. Quickly running down the slope towards the hotel, Mark disappeared. The other figure, leaning against the tree, was the figure of a girl, and Stephen, even in that first instant of fearful bewilderment, understood why it was that the face of the man Samarians had so charmed him, for this, of course, was his daughter, and then the whole thing flashed mercilessly clear upon his inner vision, and he knew that Mark, too, had been swept from his feet, and was undergoing the same fierce tortures and fighting the same dread battle as himself. There seemed to be no conscious act of recognition, the fire that flamed through him and set his frozen heart so fearfully beating again, hammering against his ribs, left him apparently without volition or any power of cerebral action at all. She stood there, not half a dozen yards away from where he sat all huddled upon the ground, stood there in all her beauty, her mystery, her wonder near enough for him to have taken her almost with a single leap into his arms, stood there, veiled a little by the shadows of the dusk, waiting for the return of Mark. He remembers what happened with a blurred indistinctness common to moments of overwhelming passion. For in the next few seconds, 
that mocked all scale of time. He lived through a series of concentrated emotions that burned his brain too vividly for precise recollection. He rose to his feet unsteadily, his hand upon the rough bark of the tree. Absurd details only seemed to remain of these few moments. That a foot was asleep with pins and needles up to the knee, and that his slouch hat fell from his head, filling him with fury because it hid her from him for the fraction of a second. These odd details he remembers. And then, as though the driving power of the universe had deliberately pushed him from behind, he was advancing slowly, with short, broken steps, towards the tree where the girl stood with her back half-turned against him. He did not know her name, had never heard her voice, had never even stood close enough to feel her atmosphere. Yet, so deeply had his love and imagination already prepared the little paths of intimacy within him, that he felt he was moving towards someone whom he had known ever since he could remember, and who belonged to him as utterly as if from the beginning of time his possession of her had been absolute. Had they shared together a whole series of previous lives, the sensation could not have been more convincing and complete. And, out of all this whirlwind and tumult, two small actions, he remembers, were delivered. A confused cry that was no definite word came from his lips, and he opened his arms to take her to his heart. Whereupon, of course, she turned with a quick start and became for the first time aware of his near presence. Oh, oh, but how so softly quick you return she cried falteringly, looking into his eyes with a smile both of welcome and alarm. You a little frightened me, I tell you. It was just the voice he had known would come, with the curiously slow, dragging tone of its broken English, the words lingering against the lips as if loath to leave, the soft warmth of their sound in the throat like a caress. The next instant he held her smothered in his arms, his face buried in the scented hair about her neck. There was an unbelievable time of forgetfulness in which touch, perfume, and a healing power that emanated from her blessed the depths of his soul with a peace that calmed all pain, stilled all tumult, a moment in which time itself for once stopped its remorseless journey and the very processes of life stood still to watch. Then there was a frightened cry, and she had pushed him from her. She stood there, her soft eyes puzzled and surprised, looking hard at him, panting a little, her breast heaving, and Stephen understood then, if he had not already understood before. The gesture of recognition in the hotel veranda two days ago, and this glorious realization of it that now seemed to have happened a century ago, shared a common origin. They were intended for another and on both occasions the girl had taken him for his brother, Mark. And, turning sharply, almost falling with the abruptness of it all, as the girl's lips uttered that sudden cry, he saw close beside them the very person for whom they were intended. Mark had come up the slope behind them unobserved, carrying upon his arm the little red cloak he had been to fetch. It was as though a wind of ice had struck him in the face. The revulsion of feeling with which Stephen saw the return of his brother passed rapidly into a state of numbness, 
for all emotion whatsoever ebbed like the tides of death. He lost momentarily the power of realization. He forgot who he was, what he was doing there. He was dazed by the fact that Mark had so completely forestalled him. His life shook and tottered upon its foundations. Then the face and figure of his brother swayed before his eyes like the branch of a tree. As an attack of passing dizziness seized him, it may have been a mere hazard that led his fingers to close, moist and clammy upon the geological hammer at his belt. Certainly, he let it go again almost at once, and, when the tide of emotion returned upon him with the dreadful momentum it had gathered during the interval, the possibility of his yielding to wild impulse in doing something mad or criminal was obviated by the swift enactment of an exceedingly poignant little drama that made both brothers forget themselves in their desire to save the girl. In sweetest bewilderment, like a frightened little child or animal, the girl looked from one brother to the other. Her eyes shone in the dusk. Strangely appealing, her loveliness was in that moment of seeking some explanation of the double vision. She made a movement first towards Mark, turned halfway in her steps and ran, startled upon Stephen. Then, with a sharp scream of fear, dropped in a heap to the ground midway between the two. Her indecision of half a second, however, seemed to Stephen to have lasted many minutes. Had she fallen finally into the arms of his brother, he felt nothing on earth could have prevented his leaping upon him with the hands of a murderer. As it was, mercifully, the singular beauty of her little eastern face, touched as it was by the white terror of her soul, momentarily arrested all other feelings in him. A shudder of fearful admiration passed through him as he saw her sway and fall. Thus might have dropped some soft angel from the skies. It was Mark, however, with his usual decision, who brought some possibility of focus back to his mind. And he did it with an action and a sentence so utterly unexpected, so incongruous amid this whirlwind of passion, that had he seen it on the stage or read it in a novel, he must surely have burst out laughing. For, in that very second after the dear form swayed and fell, while the eyes of the brothers met across her in one swift look that held the possibilities of the direst results. Mark, his face abruptly clearing to calmness, stooped down beside the prostrate girl and, looking up at Stephen steadily, said in a gentle voice, but with his most deliberate professional manner, Stephen, old fellow, this is my patient. One of us, perhaps, had better go. He bent down to loosen the dress at the throat and chafe the cold hands, and Stephen, uncertain exactly what he did, and trembling like a child, turned and disappeared among the thick trees in the direction of their little house, for he understood only one thing clearly in that awful moment, that he must either kill or not see. And his will, well nigh breaking beneath the pressure, was just able to take the latter course. Go, it said peremptorily, and the little word sounded through the depths of his soul like the tolling of a last bell. End of section 7
All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Jared Wetzel Brown. The Lost Valley by Algernon Blackwood. Section 8. This is my patient. The dreadful comedy of the phrase, the grim mockery of the professional manner, the contrast between the words that someone ought to have uttered and the words Mark actually had uttered, all this had the effect of restoring Stephen to some measure of sanity. No one but his brother, he felt, could have said the thing so exactly calculated to relieve the choking passion of the situation. It was an inspiration, yet horrible in its bizarre mingling of true and false. But it's all like a thing in a dream, he heard an inner voice murmur as he stumbled homewards without once looking back. The kind of thing people say and do in the rooms of strange sleep houses. We are all surely in a dream, and presently I shall wake up. The voice continued talking, but he did not listen. A web of confusion began to spin itself about his thoughts, and there stole over him an odd sensation of remoteness from the actual things of life. It was surely one of those vivid, haunting dreams he sometimes had when his spirit seemed to take part in real scenes, with real people, only far, far away, and on quite another scale of time and values. I shall find myself in my bed at Wimpole Street, he exclaimed. He even tried to escape from the pain closing about him like a vice, tried to escape by waking up, only to find, of course, that the effort drove him more closely to the reality of his position. Yet the texture of a dream certainly ran through the whole thing. The outlandish proportions of dream events showed themselves everywhere. The tiny causes and prodigious effects, the terrific power of the face upon his soul, the uncanny semi-quenching of his love for Mark, the ridiculous way he had come upon these two in the forest, with the nightmare discovery that they had known one another for days, and then the sight of that dear magical face dropping through the dusky forest air between the two of them, Moreover, just when the dream ought to have ended with his sudden awakening, it had taken this abrupt and inconsequent turn, and Mark had uttered the language of, well, the impossible and rather horrible language of the nightmare world. This is my patient. Moreover, his face of ice as he said it, yet, at the same time, the wisdom, the gentleness of the decision that lay behind the words the desire to relieve an impossibly painful situation. And then, the other words, meant kindly, even meant nobly, but charged for all that with the naked cruelty of life. One of us, perhaps, had better go. And he had gone. Fortunately, he had gone. Yet an hour later, after lying motionless upon his bed, seeking with all his power for a course of action his will could follow, and his mind approve, it was no dream voice that called softly to him through the keyhole. Stevie, old fellow, she is well. She is all right now. She leaves in the morning with her father, the first thing, very early. And then, after a pause in which Stephen said nothing lest he should at the same time say all, and it is best, perhaps, we should not see one another, you and I, for a bit. Let us go our ways till tomorrow night. Then we shall be alone together again.
you and I, as of old. The voice of Mark did not tremble, but it sounded far away and unreal, almost like wind in the keyhole, thin, reedy, sighing, oddly broken and interrupted. I'm yours, Stevie, old fellow, always yours. It added far down the corridor, more like the voice of dream again than ever. But though he made no reply at the moment, Stephen welcomed and approved both the proposal and the spirit in which it was made. And next day, soon after sunrise, he left the chalet very quietly and went off alone into the mountains with his thoughts and with the pain that all night long had simply been eating him alive. End of section 8 Section 9 of The Lost Valley This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Jared Wetzel Brown. The Lost Valley by Algernon Blackwood. Section 9. It is impossible to know precisely what he felt all that morning in the mountains. His emotions charged like wild bulls to and fro. He seemed conscious only of two master feelings. First, that his life now belonged beyond possibility of change or control to another. Yet, secondly, that his will-tried and tempered weapon of steel that it was held firm. Thus, his powerful feelings flung him from one wall of his dreadful prison to another without possible means of escape. For his position involved a fundamental contradiction. The new love owned him, yet his will cried, I love Mark. I hold true to that. In the end, I shall conquer. He refused, that is, to capitulate, or rather to acknowledge that he had capitulated. And meanwhile, even while he cried, his inmost soul listened, watched, and laughed, well content to abide the issue. But if his feelings were in too great commotion for clear analysis, his thoughts, on the other hand, were painfully definite. Some of them, at least. And, as the physical exercise lessened the assaults of emotion, these stood forth in sharp relief against the confusion of his inner world. It was now clear as the day, for instance, that Mark had been through a battle similar to his own. The chance meeting with the professor had led to the acquaintance with his daughter, then, swiftly and inevitably, just as it would have happened to Stephen in his place, love had accomplished its full magic, and Mark had been afraid to tell him. The twins had traveled the same path, only personal feeling having clouded their usual intuition. Neither had divined the truth. Stephen saw it now with pitiless clarity, his brother's frequent visits to the hotel, omitting to mention that the notes of invitation probably also included himself, the desire, nay, the intention to stay on, the delay in packing, and a dozen other details stood out clearly. He remembered, too, with a pang how Mark had not slept that memorable night. He recalled their enigmatical conversation on the balcony as the sun rose, and all the rest of the miserable puzzle. And, as he realized from his own torments what Mark must also have suffered, be suffering now, he was conscious of a strengthening of his will to conquer. The thought linked him fiercely again to his twin, for nothing in their lives had yet been separate, 
and the chain of their spiritual intimacy was of incalculably vast strength they would win when back to one another's side again mark would conquer her he stephen would also in the end conquer her but with the thought of her lying thus dead to him and his life cold and empty without her came the inevitable revulsion of feeling it was the anarchy of love the face the perfume the rushing power of her melancholy dear eyes with their singular touch of proud languor in a word all the amazing magic that had swept himself and mark from their feet tore back upon him with such an invasion of entreaty and command that he sat down upon the very rocks where he was and buried his face in his hands literally groaning with the pain of it for the thought lacerated within to give her up was a sheer impossibility to give up his brother was equally inconceivable the weight of thirty-five years love and associations thus gave battle against the telling blow of a single moment behind the first lay all that life had built into the woof of his personality hitherto but beyond the second lay the potent magic the huge seductive invitation of what he might become in the future with her the contest in the nature of the forces engaged was an unequal one yet all that morning as he wandered aimlessly over ridge and summit and across the high zhe'a pastures above the forest meeting no single human being he fought with himself as only men with innate energy of soul know how to fight bitterly savagely blindly he did not stop to realize that he was somewhat in the position of a fly that strives to push from its appointed course the planet on which it rides through space for the tides of life itself bore him upon their crest and at thirty-five these tides are at the full thus gradually it was then as the hopelessness of the struggle became more and more apparent that the door of the only alternative opened slightly and let him peer through once ajar however it seemed the same second wide open he was through and it was closed behind him for a different nature the alternative might have taken a different form as has been seen he was too strong a man to drift merely a definite way out that could commend itself to a man of action had to be found and though the raw material of heroism may have been in him he made no claim to a martyrdom that should last as long as life itself and this alternative dawned upon him now as the grey light of a last morning must dawn upon the condemned prisoner given stephen and given this particular problem it was the only way out he envisaged it thus suddenly with a kind of ultimate calmness and determination that was characteristic of the man and in every way it was characteristic of the man for it involved the precise combination of courage and cowardice weakness and strength selfishness and sacrifice that expressed the true resultant of all the forces at work in his soul to him at the moment of his rapid decision however it seemed that the dominant motive was the sacrifice to be offered upon the altar of his love for mark the twisted notion possessed him that in this way he might atone in some measure for the waning of his brotherly devotion his love for the girl her possible love for him both were to be sacrificed to obtain the happiness the eventual happiness 
of these other two. Long, long ago, Mark had himself said that under such circumstances, one or other of them would have to go. And the decision Stephen had come to was that the one to go was himself. This day among the woods and mountains should be his last on earth. By the evening of the following day, Mark should be free. I'll give my life for him. His face was gray and set as he said it. He stood on the high ridge, bathed by sun and wind. He looked over the fair world of wooded vales and mountains at his feet, but his eyes turned inwards, saw only his brother and that sweet eastern face. Then darkness. He will understand and perforce accept it. And with time, yes, with time, the new happiness shall fill his soul utterly and hers. It is for her, too, that I give it. It must, under these unparalleled circumstances, be right. And although there was no single cloud in the sky, the landscape at his feet suddenly went dark and sunless from one horizon to the other. End of section 9section 10 of the lost valley this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org read by jared wetzel brown the lost valley by algernon blackwood section 10 then having come into the gloom of this terrible decision his imaginative nature at once bounded to the opposite extreme and a kind of exultation possessed him. The stereotyped verdict of a coroner's jury might in this instance have been true. The prolonged stress of emotion under which he had so long been laboring had at last produced a condition of mind that could only be considered unsound. A cool wind swept his face as he let his tired eyes wander over the leagues of silent forest below. The blue Jea, with its myriad folded valleys, lay about him like the waves of a giant sea ready to swallow up the little atom of his life within its deep heart of forgetfulness. Clear away into France he saw on the one side where, beyond the fortress of Pantalier, white clouds sailed the horizon before a westerly wind, and, on the other, towards the white-robed Alps rising mistily through the haze of the autumn sunshine. Between these extreme distances lay all that world of a hundred intricate valleys, curiously winding, deeply wooded, little inhabited, a region of soft, confusing loveliness where a traveler might well lose himself for days together before he discovered a way out of so vast a maze. And, as he gazed, there passed across his mind, like the dim memory of something heard in childhood, that legend of the lost valley in which the souls of the unhappy dead find the deep peace that is denied to them by all the religions, and to which hundreds, who have not yet the sad rite of entry, seek to find the mournful forest gates. The memory was vivid, but swiftly engulfed by others and forgotten. They chased each other in rapid succession across his mind, as clouds at sunset pass before a high wind, merging on the horizon in a common mass. Then, slowly, at length, he turned and made his way down the mountainside in the direction of the French frontier for a last journey upon the sweet surface of the world he loved. 
in his soul was the one dominant feeling this singular exultation arising from the knowledge that in the long run his great sacrifice must ensure the happiness of the two beings he loved more than all else in life at the solitary farm where an hour later he had his lunch of bread and cheese and milk he learned that he had wandered many miles out of the routes with which he was more or less familiar he had been walking faster than he knew all these hours of battle a physical weariness came upon him that made him conscious of every muscle in his body as he realized what a long road over mountain and valley he had to retrace but with a heaviness of fatigue ran still that sense of interior spiritual exaltation something in him walked on air with springs of steel something that was independent of the dragging limbs and the aching back for the rest his sensations seemed numb his great decision stood black before him blocking the way thoughts and feelings forsook him as rats leave a sinking ship the time for these was past two overmastering desires however clung fast one to see mark again and be with him the other to be once more with her these two desires left no room for others with the former indeed it was almost as though mark had called aloud to him by name he stood a moment where the depth of the valley he had to thread lay like a twisting shadow at his feet it ran soft and dim through the slanting sunshine from the whole surface of the woods rose a single murmur like the whirring of voices heard in a dream he thought the individual purring of separate trees was merged peace most ancient and profound lay in it and its hushed whisper soothed his spirit he hurried his pace a little the cool wind that had swept his face on the heights earlier in the afternoon followed him down urging him forwards with deliberate pressure as though a thousand soft hands were laid upon his back and there were spirits in the wind that day he heard their voices and far below he traced by the motion of the treetops where they coiled upwards to him through miles of forest his way meanwhile dived down through dense growths of spruce and pine into a region unfamiliar there was an aspect of the scenery that almost suggested it was unknown an undiscovered corner of the world the countless signs that marked the passage of humanity were absent or at least did not obtrude themselves upon him something remote from life alien at any rate to the normal life he had hitherto known began to steal gently over his burdened soul in this way perhaps the effect of his dreadful decision already showed its influence upon his mind and senses so very soon now he would be going the sadness of autumn lay all about him and the loneliness of this secluded vale spoke to him of the melancholy of things that die of vanished springs of summers unfulfilled of things forever incomplete and unsatisfying human effort he felt this valley had never known no hooves had ever pressed the mossy turf of these forest clearings no traffic of peasants or woodsmen won echoes from these limestone cliffs all was hushed lonely deserted and yet the depths to which it apparently plunged astonished him more and more nowhere more than half a mile across each turn of the shadowy trail revealed new distances below with spots of a haunting fairy loveliness too for here and there on isolated patches of lawn-like grass stood wild lilac bushes rounded by the wind willows from the swampy banks of the stream waved pale hands 
firs, dark and erect, guarded their eternal secrets on the heights. In one little opening, standing all by itself, he found the lime tree, while beyond it, shining among the pines, was a group of shimmering beeches, and, although there was no wildlife, there were flowers. He saw clumps of them, tall, graceful, blue flowers whose name he did not know, nodding in dream across the foaming water of the little torrent. And his thoughts ran incessantly to Mark. Never before had he been conscious of so imperious a desire to see him, to hear his voice, to stand at his side. At moments it almost obliterated that other great desire. Again, he increased his pace, and the path plunged more and more deeply into the heart of the mountain, sinking ever into deeper silence, ever into an atmosphere of deeper peace. For no sound could reach him here without first passing along great distances that were cushioned with soft wind and padded, as it were, with a million feathery pine tops. A sense of peace that was beyond reach of all possible disturbance began to cover his breaking life with a garment as of softest shadows. Never before had he experienced anything approaching the wonder and completeness of it. It was a peace still at the depths of the sea which are motionless because they cannot move, cannot even tremble. It was a peace unchangeable, what some have called perhaps the peace of God. Soon the turn must come, he thought, yet without a trace of impatience or alarm, and the road wind upwards again to cross the last ridge. But he cared little enough, for this enveloping peace drowned him, hiding even the fear of death. And still the road sank downwards into the sleep-laden atmosphere of the crowding trees, and with it his thoughts, oddly enough, sank deeper and deeper into dim recesses of his own being, as though a secret sympathy lay between the path that dived and the thoughts that plunged. Only from time to time the thought of his brother Mark brought him back to the surface with a violent rush. Dreadfully, in those moments he wanted him, to feel his warm, strong hand within his own, to ask his forgiveness, perhaps, too, to grant his own. He hardly knew. But is there no end to this delicious valley, he wondered, with something between vagueness and confusion in his mind. Does it never stop, and the path climb again to the mountains beyond? Drowsily, divorced from any positive interest, the question passed through his thoughts. Underfoot, the grass already grew thickly enough to muffle the sound of his footsteps. The trail even had vanished, swallowed by moss. His feet sank in. I wish Mark were with me now, to see and feel all this. He stopped short, and looked keenly about him for a moment, leaving the thought incomplete. A deep sign, instantly caught by the wind and merged in the soughing of the trees, had sounded close beside him. Was it perhaps himself that sighed? unconsciously? His heart was surely charged enough. A faint smile played over his lips, instantly frozen. However, as another sigh, more distinct than the first, and quite obviously external to himself, passed him closely in the darkening air. More like deep breathing, though, it was than sighing. It was nothing but the wind, of course. Stephen hurried on again, not surprised that he had been so easily deceived, for this valley was full of signs and breathings, of trees and wind. It ventured upon no louder noise. 
Noise of any kind, indeed, seemed impossible and forbidden in this muted vale, and so deeply had he descended now that the sunshine, silver rather than golden, already streamed past far over his head along the ridges, and no gleam found its way to where he was. The shadows, too, no longer blue and purple, had changed to black, as though woven of some delicate substance that had definite thickness, like a veil. Across the opposite slope, one of the mountain summits in the western sky already dropped its monstrous shadow fringed with pines. The day was rapidly drawing in. End of section 10section eleven of the lost valley this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit LibriVox.org. read by jared wetzel brown the lost valley by algernon blackwood section eleven and here very gradually there began to dawn upon his overwrought mind certain curious things they pierced clean through the mingled gloom and exultation that characterized his mood, and they made the skin upon his back a little to stir and crawl. For he now became distinctly aware that the emptiness of this lonely valley was only apparent. It is impossible to say through what sense, or combination of senses, this singular certainty was brought to him, that the valley was not really as forsaken and deserted as it seemed, that, on the contrary, it was the very reverse. It came to him suddenly, as a certainty. The valley, as a matter of fact, was full, packed, thronged, and crowded. It was to the very brim of its mighty wooded walls, with life. It was now borne in upon him, with an inner conviction that left no room for doubt, that on all sides living things, persons, were jostling him, rubbing elbows, watching all his movements, and only waiting till the darkness came to reveal themselves. Moreover, with this eerie discovery came also the further knowledge that a vast multitude of others, again, with pallid faces and yearning eyes, with arms outstretched and groping feet, were searching everywhere for the way of entrance that he himself had found so easily. All about him, he felt, were people by the hundred, by the thousand seeking with a kind of restless fever for the narrow trail that led down into the valley, longing with an intensity that beat upon his soul in a million waves, for the rest, the calm silence of the place, but most of all for its strange, deep, and unalterable peace. He alone of all these had found the entrance, he and one other. For out of this singular conviction grew another even more singular. His brother Mark was also somewhere in this valley with him. Mark, too, was wandering like himself in and out among its intricate, dim turns. He had said but a short time ago, I wish Mark were here. Mark was here. And it was precisely then, while he stood still a moment trying to face these overwhelming obsessions and deal with them, that the figure of a man, moving swiftly through the trees, passed him with a great gliding stride and with averted face. Stephen started horribly, catching his breath. In an instant the man was gone again, swallowed up by the crowding pines. With a quick movement of pursuit and a cry that should make the man turn, he sprang forward, 
but stopped again almost the same moment, realizing that the extraordinary speed at which the man had shot past him rendered pursuit out of the question. He had been going downhill into the valley. By this time, he was already far, far ahead. But in that momentary glimpse of him, he had seen enough to know. The face was turned away, and the shadows under the trees were heavy, but the figure was beyond question the figure of his brother Mark. It was his brother, yet not his brother. It was Mark, but Mark altered, and the alteration was in some way awful, just as the silent speed at which he had moved, the impossible speed in so dense a forest, was likewise awful. Then, still shaking inwardly with the suddenness of it all, Stephen realized that when he called aloud he had uttered certain definite words, and these words now came back to him. Mark! Mark! Don't go yet! Don't go! Without me! Before, however, he could act, a most curious and unaccountable sensation of deadly faintness and pain came upon him, without cause, without explanation, so that he dropped backwards in momentary collapse, and but for the closeness of the tree stems would have fallen full length to the ground. From the center of the heart it came, spreading thence throughout his whole being like a swift and dreadful fever. All the muscles of his body relaxed. Icy perspiration burst forth upon his skin. The pulses of life seemed suddenly reduced to the threshold beyond which they stopped. There was a thick, rushing sound in his ears, and his mind went utterly blank. These were the sensations of death by suffocation. He knew this as certainly as though another doctor stood by his side and labeled each spasm, explained each successive sinking of the vital flame. He was passing through the last throes of a dying man, and then into his mind, thus deliberately left blank, rushed at lightning speed a whole series of the pictures of his past life. Even while his breath failed, he saw his thirty-five years pictorially, successively, yet in some queer fashion, at once, passed through the lighted chambers of his brain. In this way, it is said, they passed through the brain of a drowning man during the last seconds before death. Childhood rose about him with its scenes, figures, voices, the Kentish lawns where he had played with Mark and stained overalls, the summer house where they had tea, the hayfields where they romped, the scent of lime and walnut, of garden pinks and roses by the tumbled rockery came back to his nostrils. He heard the voices of grown-ups in the distance, faint barking of dogs, the carriage wheels upon the gravel drive, and then the sharp summons from the open window. Time to come in now! Time to come in! Time to come in now. It all drove before him as of yesterday on the scented winds of childhood's summer days. He heard his brother's voice, dreadfully faint and far away, calling him by name in the shrill accents of the boy. Stevie, I say, you might shut up and play properly. And then followed the panorama of the thirty years, all the chief events drawn in steel-like lines of white and black, vivid in sunshine, alive, right down to the present moment with a portentous dark shadow of his terrible decision closing the series like a cloud. Yes, like a smothering black cloud that blocked the way, there was nothing visible beyond it.
there for him life ceased. Only as he gazed with inward-turned eyes that could not close even if they would, he saw to his amazement that the black cloud suddenly opened, and into a space of clear light there swam the vision, radiant as morning, of that dark, young, eastern face, the face that held for him all the beauty in the world. The eyes instantly found his own and smiled. Behind her, moreover, and beyond, before the moving vapors closed upon it, he saw a long vista of brilliance, crowded with pictures he could but half discern. As though, in spite of himself and his decision, life continued, as though, too, it continued with her. And instantly, with the sight and thought of her, the consuming faintness passed. Strength returned to his body with the glow of life. The pain went. The pictures vanished. The cloud was no more. In his blood, the pulses of life once again beat strong, and the blackness left his soul. The smile of those beloved eyes had been charged with the invitation to live. Although his determination remained unshaken, there shone behind it the joy of this potent magic, life with her. With a strong effort, at length, he recovered himself and continued on his way. More or less familiar, of course, with the psychology of vision, he dimly understood that his experiences had been in some measure subjective within himself. To find the line of demarcation, however, was beyond him. That mark had wandered out to fight his own battle upon the mountains, and so come into the same valley was well within the bounds of coincidence. But the nameless and dreadful alteration discerned in that swift moment of his passing, that remained inexplicable. Only he no longer thought about it. The glory of that sweet vision had bewildered him beyond any possibility of reason or analysis. His watch told him that the hour was past five o'clock, ten minutes past to be exact. He still had several hours before reaching the country he was familiar with nearer home. Following the trail at an increased pace, he presently saw patches of meadow glimmering between the thinning trees and knew that the bottom of the valley was at last in sight. And Mark, God bless him, is down there too, somewhere, he exclaimed aloud. I shall surely find him. For, strange to say, nothing could have persuaded him that his twin was not wandering among the shadows of this peaceful and haunted valley with himself, and that he would shortly find him. End of section 11section 12 of the lost valley this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org read by jared wetzel brown the lost valley by algernon blackwood section 12 and a few minutes later he passed from the forest as through an open door and found himself before a farmhouse standing in a patch of bright green meadow against the mountainside. He was in need both of food and information. The chalet, less lumbering and picturesque than those found in the Alps, had nevertheless the appearance of being exceedingly ancient. It was not toy-like, as the Jeux chalets sometimes are, solidly built, its balcony and overhanging roof supported by immense beams of deeply stained wood. It stood so that the back walls merged into the mountain slope behind and the arms of pine, spruce, and fir seemed stretched out to include it among their shadows. 
A last ray of sunshine dipping between two far summits overhead touched it with pale gold, bringing out the rich beauty of the heavily dyed beams. Though no one was visible at the moment, and no smoke rose from the shingled chimney, it had the appearance of being occupied, and Stephen approached it with a caution due to the first evidence of humanity he had come across since he entered the valley. Under the shadow of the broad balcony roof he noticed that the door, like that of a stable, was in two parts, and, wondering rather to find it closed, he knocked firmly upon the upper half. Under the pressure of a second knock, this upper half yielded slightly, though without opening. The lower half, however, evidently barred and bolted, remained unmoved. The third time he knocked with more force than he intended, and the knock sounded loud and clamorous as a summons. From within, as though great spaces stretched beyond, came a murmur of voices, faint and muffled, and then almost immediately the footsteps of someone coming softly up to open. But instead of the heavy brown door opening, there came a voice. He heard it, petrified with amazement, for it was a voice he knew, hushed, soft, lingering. His heart, hammering atrociously, seemed to leave its place and cut his breath away. Stephen, it murmured, calling him by name. What are you doing here so soon? And what is it that you want? The knowledge that only this dark door separated him from her at first bereft him of all power of speech or movement, and the possible significance of her words escaped him. Through the sweet confusion that turned his spirit faint, he only remembered, flashlike, that she and her father were indeed to have left the hotel that very morning. After that, his thoughts stopped dead. Then, also flashlike, swept back upon him the memory of the figure that had passed him with averted face, and, with it, the clear conviction that at this moment Mark, too, was somewhere in this very valley, even close beside him. More, Mark was in the chalet, with her. The torrent of speech that instantly crowded to his lips was almost too thick for utterance. Open, 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 was all he heard intelligibly from the throng of words that poured out. He raised his hands to push and force, but her reply again stopped him. Even if I open, you may not enter yet, came the whisper through the door. And this time he could almost have sworn that it sounded within himself rather than without. I must enter, he cried. Open to me, I say. But you are trembling. Open to me, oh, my life, open to me. But your heart, it is shaking, because you... You are so near, came in passionate, stammering tones, because you stand there beside me. And then, before she could answer, or his will control the words, he had added, and because Mark, my brother, is in there with you. Hush, hush, came the soft, astonishing reply. He is in here, true, but he is not with me. And it is for my sake that he has come, for my sake and for yours. My soul, alas, has led him to the gates. But Stephen's emotions had reached the breaking point, and the necessity for action was upon him like a storm. He drew back a pace so as to fling himself better against the closed door, when to his utter surprise it moved. The upper half swung slowly outwards, and he saw. He was aware of a vast room with closely shuttered windows that seemed to stretch beyond the walls into the wooded mountainside, 
thronged with moving figures like forms of life gently gliding to and fro in some huge darkened tank. And there, framed against this opening, the girl herself. She stood visible to the waist, radiant in the solitary beam of sunshine that reached the chalet, smiling down wondrously into his face with the same exquisite beauty in her eyes that he had seen before in the vision of the clouds, with, too, that supreme invitation in them, the invitation to live. The loveliness blinded him. He could see the down upon her little dark cheeks where the sunlight kissed them. There was the cloud of hair upon her neck where his lips had lain. There, too, the dear, slight breast that not twenty-four hours ago had known the pressure of his arms. And, once again, driven forward by the love that triumphed over all obstacles, real or artificial, he advanced headlong with outstretched arms to take her. Katya, he cried, never thinking how passing strange it was that he knew her name at all, much more the endearing and shortened form of it. Katya! But the young girl held up her little brown hand against him with a gesture that was more strong to restrain than any number of bolted doors. Not here, she murmured with her grave smile, while behind the words he caught in that darkened room the alternate hush and sign as of a thousand sleepers. Not here. You cannot see him now. For these are the reception halls of death, and here I stand in the vestibule of the beyond. Our way, your way and mine, lies farther yet, traced there since the beginning of the world, together. In quaintly broken English it was spoken, but his mind remembers the singular words in their more perfect form. Even this, however, came later. At the moment, he only felt the twofold wave of love surge through him with a tide of power that threatened to break him asunder. He must hold her to his heart. He must come instantly to his brother's side, meet his eyes, have speech with him. The desire to enter that great darkened room and force a path through the dimly gliding forms to his brother became irresistible while tearing upon its heels came like a fever of joy the meaning of the words she had just uttered, and especially of that last word, together. Then, for an instant, all the forces in his being turned negative so that his will refused to act. The excess of feeling numbed him. A flying interval of knowledge, calm and certain, came to him. The exaltation of spirit which produced the pictures of all this spiritual clairvoyance moved a stage higher and he realized that he witnessed an order of things pertaining to the world of eternal causes rather than of temporary effects. Someone had lifted the veil. With the feeling that he could only wait and let things take their extraordinary course, he stood still. For an instant, even less, he must have hidden his eyes in his hand, for when, a moment later, he again looked up, he saw that the half of the swinging door which had been open was now closed. He stood alone upon the balcony, and the sunshine had faded entirely from the scene. It was here, it seems, that the last vestige of self-control disappeared. He flung himself against the door, and the door met his assault like a wall of solid rock. Crying aloud alternately the names of his two loved ones, he turned, scarcely knowing what he did, and ran into the meadow. Dusk was about the chalet, drawing the encircling forest closer. Soon the true darkness would stalk down the slopes. The walls of the valley reared, it seemed, up to heaven. Still calling, he ran about the walls, searching wildly for a way of entrance, his mind charged with bewildering fragments of what he had heard. The reception halls of death, the vestibule of the beyond. You cannot see him now. 
our way lies farther, and together. And on the far side of the chalet, by the corner that touched the trees, he suddenly stopped, feeling his gaze drawn upwards, and there, pressed close against the window pane of an upper room, saw that someone was peering down upon him. With a sensation of freezing terror, he realized that he was staring straight into the eyes of his brother Mark. Bent a little forward with the effort to look down, the face, pale and motionless, gazed into his own, but without the least sign of recognition. Not a feature moved, and although but a few feet separated the brothers, the face wore the dim, misty appearance of great distance. It was like the face of a man called suddenly from deep sleep, dazed, perplexed, nay, more frightened and horribly distraught. What Stephen read upon it, however, in that first moment of sight, was the signature of the great eternal question men have asked since the beginning of time, yet never heard the answer. And into the heart of the twin the pain of it plunged like a sword. Mark, he stammered in that low voice the valley seemed to exact. Mark, is that really you? Tears swam already in his eyes, and yearning in a flood choked his utterance. And Mark, with a dreadful, steady stare that still held no touch of recognition, gazed down upon him from the closed window of that upper chamber, motionless, unblinking, as an image of stone. It was almost like an imitation figure of himself, only with the effect of some added alteration. For alteration certainly there was, awful and unknown alteration. Though Stephen was utterly unable to detect wherein it lay, and he remembered how the figure had passed him in the woods with averted face. He made then, it seems, some violent sign or other, in response to which his brother at last moved, slowly opening the window. He leaned forward, stooping with lowered head and shoulders over the sill, while Stephen ran up against the wall beneath and craned up towards him. The two faces drew close, their eyes met clean and straight, then the lips of Mark moved, and the distraught look half vanished within the borders of a little smile of puzzled and affectionate wonder. Stevie, old fellow, issued a tiny, faraway voice. But where are you? I see you, so dimly. It was like a voice crying faintly down half a mile of distance. He shuddered to hear it. I'm here, Mark, close to you, he whispered. I hear your voice, I feel your presence, came the reply like a man talking in his sleep. But I see you, as through a glass darkly, and I want to see you all clear and close. But you, where are you? interrupted Stephen with anguish. Alone, quite alone, over here and it's cold, oh, so cold. The words came gently, half veiling a complaint. The wind caught them and ran round the walls towards the forest, wailing as it went. But how did you come? How did you come? Stephen raised himself on tiptoe to catch the answer, but there was no answer. The face receded a little, and as it did so, the wind, passing up the walls again, stirred the hair on the forehead. Stephen saw it move. He thought, too, the head moved with it, shaking slightly to and fro. Oh, but tell me, my dear, dear brother, tell me, he cried, sweating horribly, his limbs shaking. 
Mark made a curious gesture, withdrawing at the same time a little further into the room behind, so that he now stood upright, half in shadow by the window. The alteration in him proclaimed itself more plainly, though still without betraying its exact nature. There was something about him that was terrible, and the air that came from the open window upon Stephen was so freezing that it seemed to turn the perspiration on his face into ice. I do not know. I do not remember. He heard the tiny voice inside the room, ever withdrawing. Besides, I may not speak with you, yet. It is so difficult, and it hurts. Stephen stretched out his body, the arms scraping the wooden walls above his head, trying to climb the smooth and slippery surface. For the love of God, he cried with passion, tell me what it all means and what you are doing here. You and, and, oh, and all three of us. The words rang out through the silent valley. But the other one stood there motionless again by the window, his face distraught and dazed as though the effort of speech had already been too much for him. His image had begun to fade a little. He seemed, without moving, yet to be retreating into some sort of interior distance. Presently, it seemed, he would disappear altogether. I don't know, came the voice at length, fainter than before, half muffled. I have been asleep, I think. I have just waked up and come across from somewhere else, where we were all together, you and I, and, and, like his brother, he was unable to speak the name. He ended the sentence a moment later in a whisper that was only just audible. But I cannot tell you how I came, he said, for I do not know the words. Stephen then, with a violent leap, tried to reach the windowsill and pull himself up. The distance was too great, however, and he fell back upon the grass, only just keeping his feet. I'm coming into you, he cried out very loud. Wait there for me. For the love of heaven, wait till I come to you. I'll break the doors in. Once again, Mark made that singular gesture. Again, he seemed to recede a little farther into a kind of veiled perspective that caused his appearance to fade still more. And from an incredible distance, a distance that somehow conveyed an idea of appalling height, his thin, tiny voice floated down upon his brother from the fading lips of shadow. Old fellow, don't you come. You are not ready, and it is too cold here. I shall wait, Stevie. I shall wait for you. Later. I mean farther from here. We shall one day all three be together. Only you cannot understand now. I am here for your sake, old fellow and for hers, but she loves us both, but it is you she loves the best. The whispering voice rose suddenly on these last words into a long, high cry that the wind instantly caught away and buried far in the smothering silences of the woods, for at the same moment Mark had come with a swift rush back to the window, had leaned out and stretched both hands towards his brother underneath, and his face had cleared and smiled. Caught within that smile, the awful change in him had vanished. Stephen turned and made a mad rush round the chalet to find the door he would batter in with his hands and feet and body. He searched in vain, however, for in the shadows the supporting beams of the building were indistinguishable from the stems of the trees behind. 
Their roof sank away, blotted out by the gloom of the branches, and the darkness now wove forest, sky, and mountain into a uniform black sheet against which no item was separately visible. There was no chalet any longer. He was simply battering with bruised hands and feet upon the solid trunks of pines and spruces in his path, which he continued to do, calling ever aloud for Mark, until finally he grew dizzy with exhaustion and fell to the ground in a state of semi-consciousness. And, for the best part of half an hour, he lay there motionless upon the moss, while the vast hands of night drew the cloak of her softest darkness over valley and mountain, covering his small body with as much care as she covered the sky, the hemisphere, and all those leagues of velvet forest. End of section 12